Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, October 11th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippians are reacting to the growing conflict between Israel and Palestine. Then, voter engagement groups are trying to get people ready for the upcoming November general election. Plus, we speak with a civil rights activist and the first white woman to attend Tougaloo College in Jackson. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. As Israel and the Palestinian Palestinian militant group Hamas are at war, experts are helping to provide context for Mississippians. The Palestinian militant group Hamas launched a multi-front attack on Israel Saturday. It resulted in the death and injury of hundreds of Israeli civilians. The Israeli government has responded with airstrikes and a total blockade blockade on Gaza. Our Will Stribling speaks with Susan Allen, professor of political science at the University of Mississippi. She says this conflict spans decades in the making. The news coming out of the Middle East can be confusing. Um, It's hard to jump in in the middle of a conflict because this one has been going on since 1948. Um, So students are trying to catch up quick. So there's a lot of ground to cover. You want to give me the, the Cliff Notes version of how we got here? In the mid-90s, there was a really big effort led by the first Bush administration and the Clinton administration to try to work towards what we refer to as the two-state solution, that there's going to be a separate and independent Palestinian state, a separate Jewish state in the form of Israel. And so the idea was, okay, Palestinians, if you want to have your own state, we need to see some evidence that you can govern yourselves. And so some elections were held in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And in those early elections, Fatah was elected and they became the head of the Palestinian Authority. They're a group that's largely centered in the West Bank, which is the other primary area where Palestinians live within the state of Israel. And Fatah was seen as a partner that the Israeli government could work with. By 2000, they were really seen as the most honest brokers that the West could work with. And so all of that is going along well 
until these elections happened in 2006. And one of the crazy things about elections is you can't always predict who's going to win. Everybody assumed the Palestinians would vote for Fatah again, and 42% of Palestinians went to the polls and voted for Hamas because they were frustrated that the two-state solution wasn't moving more quickly. And that created a problem because the United States sees Hamas as a terrorist organization. The Israeli government sees Hamas as a terrorist organization. And so it was impossible to think about what a political partnership would look like with Hamas at the head of a Palestinian government. Israel made the somewhat controversial decision to say, okay, people in Gaza, you want Hamas, you can have Hamas. We are going to stop occupying that territory, but we are going to strictly control who comes in and out, and we are going to put these concrete barriers around the area, and you can see what being ruled by Hamas is like. Can you break down the last few days of what we what we do know right now, and then also importantly what we what we don't know because there's a lot of a lot of stuff out there. I was really lucky to be invited on an academic exchange trip last summer, summer 2022, and so I've seen the wall in Gaza. We couldn't go into Gaza because almost no one goes in or out of Gaza, but it's these thick concrete barriers. And so I was just stunned on Saturday morning to see the videos of Hamas militants paragliding over those barriers or driving trucks and tractors into those barriers over and over again to knock, to knock them over. Israel really prides itself on having a strong intelligence service. They've worked really, really hard to carefully and closely control entrance in and out of Gaza. Of the two plus million people who live in Gaza, only 12,000 have permission to leave on a regular basis. So it was mind-blowing and in a lot of ways terrifying for people within the state of Israel to see Hamas militants pouring over that border, pushing over walls that they thought were impregnable, you know, using boats to get around the walls, doing things that obviously the Israeli state hadn't expected. And so a lot of people are really afraid. The idea was that a government led by a hawk like Benjamin Netanyahu would have a really strong security apparatus and that Israelis could feel safe. And so this attack by Hamas, which seemed very targeted towards civilians, we saw the, the killing of young people at a festival. We have heard stories of Hamas militants going door to door and attacking families, just really geared towards frightening people. And I think it's worked. And a lot of Israelis seem to be very afraid and want a big response from the state. Yeah. And there's, and so what are we seeing a response? I know that they, um, they've blocked off the West Bank. No fuel or food can go in. What other, um, what other actions are we seeing? Right. So right now we do sort of see two steps or two actions taken by the Israeli government. The first, you already mentioned the idea of sort of going back to the medieval siege that we're going to say, all right, no water, no food, no electricity, no internet, nothing is going to go in. Um, and the second part of the response has been airstrikes. And it appears, at least from the photos, that some of those airstrikes have been targeted against the one other exit from Gaza, which is on the border with Egypt. And that border crossing has been closed. So there is now no way in and out of the state. And so if the Israeli Air Force is bombing, there's nowhere to go for those two plus million people in Palestine. 
civilians are caught um, under that attack. On Monday night, between 50 to 60 people gathered in the Holocaust Garden at the Beth Israel Synagogue in Jackson for a vigil. Will Stribling speaks with Rabbi Joseph Rosen about how members of Mississippi's Jewish community are comforting each other. It's been a difficult, um, horrifying last few days. We woke up to the news uh, Shabbat morning and Saturday morning that Hamas had launched these attacks into Israel, and Israel hasn't experienced that kind of warfare in quite some time. There have been a number of incursions and uh, times when the uh, uh, the conflict has certainly uh, flared up, but uh, this was something that was definitely unprecedented. Um, and that it was on Shabbat, that it also coincided with the Holy Day of Simchat Torah, where we uh, review the Torah stories and restart our reading cycle from Deuteronomy and going back to Genesis, that it was on the 50th uh, anniversary of the Yom Kippur War um, and the manner in which these attacks happened made Hamas's actions uh, particularly reprehensible. Many of us are also very concerned about what the future looks like because the nature of this conflict uh, makes Israel's reality very grim and heart-wrenching when these things happen and the violence will continue it feels like with the war, the violence is going to uh, continue to escalate and many innocents will lose their lives. And so we've been sitting with that. And we gathered last night for a prayer vigil, um, and it was very comforting to be amongst friends, to be sharing our concerns. Um, as you can imagine, um, there are a lot of different political opinions on the way that the conflict unfolds. And uh, we'll be navigating that, I'm sure, as well, just as a community. As, but you know, what we're doing right now is um, finding ways to embrace and hold each other and endure, try to find the light within ourselves to uh, face the darkness around us. Any you of your uh, your congregation members have family in Israel? Like, is this is this that? Oh. Does it hit extra close to home just because of, of that? For many of us, yes. Um, now, I have extended family um, in a couple places in Israel. Um, now I'll be reaching out to them, and um, I've reached out to friends. And you know, before this happened, I knew that many congregants have personal connections, and as this continues to unfold, we're learning more and more about um, how close this feels um, when I'm hearing about family members um and dear ones who are in harm's way and having to report back to us what's happening on the ground and the way that uh, the nature, the way that the conflict gets reported um, here in the States. Uh, sometimes it feels like you hear like just one side, depending on what you're watching, and there are so many stories and things to reach for that it hits very hard when atrocities like this happen. Rabbi Joseph Rosen said that he and others are praying for the millions of Israelis and Palestinian civilians currently in harm's way. Coming up, voter engagement groups are trying to get people ready for the upcoming November general election. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Activist groups in the state are calling on Mississippians to exercise their right to vote next month. The deadline to register for the state's general election has passed. Voting rights advocates in the state are now turning their attention to educating residents on the voting process. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Debbie Pattenberg, a volunteer with the League of Women Voters. She says folks can submit absentee ballots, but it can be a complicated process. The League of Women Voters is primarily involved in educating voters about the voting process, but also ensuring that we um, encourage everyone to participate in the process of governing, self-governing, and uh, we just want everybody to be involved and participate and get out uh, and vote when that opportunity arises in every election. What do voters maybe not know that they need to know now that um, state elections are coming up? Well, I think the most important thing, of course, is to know the date. That's pretty obvious and, you know, some common sense, although it does sneak up on folks. We're working right now to remind folks that this year the general election is on Tuesday, November the 7th. And we're doing voter registration drives. We have done voter registration drives throughout the state all year long. Uh, The uh, last day to register to vote is 30 days in advance of the November 7th election. And so once we have approached that date and it is behind us now, our next goal is to remind people to go to the polls. The other thing is most some people don't know where they are supposed to vote. There are a couple places that uh, you can find that out. The Secretary of State uh, offers a nice website called Y'all Vote, but the National League of Women Voters sponsors a website called vote411.org, and it is on that website that you can put in your address and find out your polling place where you go on that day to vote. You can also find out all the other information about absentee voting and, and all the frequently asked questions for that. And Debbie, if someone were to come to you and say, explain to me what I need to do if I want to submit an absentee vote, what is your advice to them? (laughs) I say read all the rules and regulations. Uh, Mississippi does not make it easy for people to vote absentee. There are certain uh, restrictions and there are certain reasons uh, for people to be eligible to vote absentee. It's also a process that requires you to request a ballot. Uh, you have to send uh, the application back that's notarized. Uh, you have to fill out your absentee ballot and have that notarized. So if you are planning to vote absentee, then you either need to go down to your county clerk's office well in advance before the election, or you have to contact them to send you an application by mail. We just encourage people to really read the fine print if you're going to vote absentee and make sure that your vote counts. We want every vote to count. And so the information is very important to get correct uh, when you are uh, voting absentee. We do have information on vote411.org that also addresses that, include frequently asked questions about absentee voting. So if you want to vote absentee, like you said, you need to get a head start. A, a misconception is that you can just go and get a ballot, but but you're saying that that process to get approved for a ballot and to receive the actual ballot are two very different visits to your county clerk's office. Is that correct? Right. I mean, the absentee ballot, or pardon me, the absentee voting process, there is a long list of rules and regulations around that. And many people do qualify 
And as a matter of fact, tens of thousands of people in Mississippi do vote absentee. But in order for that to be counted correctly, you do have to follow all the rules. So be prepared and, and get online and find out what all those rules are. Absolutely. And do you have the deadlines for absentee voting uh, available to you right now? Well, it depends on whether you're going. I mean, you can vote absentee any date up to the the election date if you go down to your county clerk's office and you vote in person prior to the election. But if you want to vote absentee by mail, then you have to be able to receive that information in the mail and turn around and cast your ballot and get it notarized and put it back into the um, the mailbox and have that delivered by the voting day. So and I'm not I, I really am not the expert on exactly what day it has to be postmarked and stamped by. So I encourage people to look online for that. Gotcha. Yeah, that is such a that's a much longer process than I think anyone really expected or knew if they haven't been doing this already. Maybe first time voters, maybe voters that are not able to access their polling place easily. We don't have early voting in the state. Um, Absentee voting and voting in person. Are there any other options for Mississippians to cast their ballot? Uh, You can vote early at the county clerk's office. You can request an absentee ballot as long as you uh, meet all the deadlines and, uh, and, and make sure that you follow all the rules for that. And you can show up uh, on, the, on the election day, which is November 7th this year, in order to vote. Um, I would say that, and we do have a position as the League of Women Voters, that we always advocate the legislative body to consider fair, accessible, and simplified voting rules at all times. And, you know, we really want laws to continue to be passed and considered to make the voting process more fair, more simplified, more accessible, and also clarify and be real clear in communication on polling places and give people plenty of opportunity to know where they need to show up to vote. You know, voting is a basic right in this country. It is the basic right to self-govern in this country. And everything we do should be making it easier for voters to uh, access the polls. Uh, We believe in early voting. We advocate for more early voting. And we also uh, advocate for the absentee process to be simplified. Debbie Pattenberg is a volunteer with the League of Women Voters. The general election is November 7th. Sample ballots are now available on the Secretary of State's website. Coming up, a civil rights activist who participated in the Freedom Rides and sit-ins will be speaking at today's History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app to not miss any episode. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Drone Trump or McLaughlin. 
Trump Hour, McCollin, is a freedom writer who participated in the 1963 Woolworth sit-in in Jackson and was the first white woman to enroll at Tougaloo College. She's speaking today at the History is Lunch event at the two Mississippi museums. Mulholland recalls that day at the Woolworth lunch counter in 1963. It was May 28th. She sat with a small group of Tougaloo students, including fellow student Ann Moody, who wrote the book Coming of Age in Mississippi, and a Tougaloo professor, John Salter. It was three hours long um, for us, and it was just sitting there enduring the taunts, and the professor, the only male, got violence on him, but um, for the women, it was just having condiments on us, and particularly the sugar, and listening to the taunts, and just staying put, and we just sat there and took it. Which was the safest. Not only it was it was the safest thing to do, as well as you know the nonviolent thing to do. It was the bigger mob outside, and we had the press getting it down, you know, in pictures and all. So we just sat there and, and took it. How old were you at the time? I think I was twenty-one. Okay, and you were a student at Tougaloo. What made you decide to get involved in? the civil rights struggle? My Sunday school lessons about treating people the way you want to be treated and loving your neighbor as yourself, and I took that seriously, and I knew we weren't doing it. I think when I was about 10 years old visiting my grandma in rural Georgia, my girlfriend and I snuck off and went into the colored section of town where we were not supposed to go down that dirt road particularly when we got to the old colored schoolhouse, which was just a one-room shack with pot-bellied stove for heat and no running water, no electricity, no glass or screens in the windows, just wooden shutters. And then I knew out the other end of town was the fanciest building for miles around, a brand-new brick school with all the amenities for the white kids. This was before Brown versus Board, and um, I knew this was not treating people the way we wanted to be treated. I just sort of knew that when I had the chance to make things better for everybody in the South, I would seize the moment. And that came when the sit-in started. You were raised in Washington, D.C.? Well, Arlington, Virginia, right by Washington, D.C., because it was all segregated, too, but I was pretty much oblivious to it. The only black folks you really saw day-to-day were you know, doing yard work or cleaning houses, that type of thing. When you came to Mississippi and went to Tougaloo, the school is in a black neighborhood. How was that for you? What did you think when you arrived at Tougaloo College? Well, I knew that it was, well, what today we call an HBCU, and that was sort of why I had applied to it with the encouragement of um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee leadership. So I knew what I was getting into. Well, I had gotten involved in the sit-ins when I was a student at Duke University, and I had dropped out. And after I, I was at the fall conference of um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee down, I think it was Atlanta, I had seen what happened with Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes in Georgia when they integrated the university. And I thought, this is not integration. It has, integration has to be a, a two-way street not two students facing riots and all that. 
So I talked the idea over of going to a politely then called a colored school. And the leadership of SNCC agreed with that and thought, well, if you're going to do it, you may as well go to Mississippi because those students haven't done anything, meaning sit-ins yet, and maybe you can help them. They accepted me, even though my high school refused to send my transcripts. In your civil rights work, were you ever afraid for your life? No, I just didn't deal with fear. It paralyzes your brain and keeps you from thinking what you need to do. When you see how the country is now, how polarized it is, political parties, racial division, does it make you think about what you did How do you see it? How do you reflect on what you did and what you're seeing now? Well, we brought about about a lot of change, but we're turning backward. I say my generation took care of legal segregation, segregation by law. But there is still a lot of underlying discrimination going on on so many fronts, whether it's race or language or national origin, gender identification, economic status, all sorts of things. And younger folks have to get to work on that. Well, Joan Mulholland, thank you for what you have done to make the nation, Mississippi, a better place to live. And thank you. You're welcome. And I just did what the Spirit said do. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.